Uh, This morning we're in John 3, as Natalie began to read, and uh, we're continuing in this series through the Gospel of John, as John the Apostle has written this Gospel so that others might believe and have life in His name. He's tirelessly, uh, in the power and inspiration of the Holy Spirit, written this Gospel Um, organizing it in this way, um, including these miracles, including these stories for a specific purpose, that being that those reading it, those hearing it read, those 2,000 years later hearing it preached might believe in this Jesus whom John presents as the Son of God, uh, the Savior of the world that they might believe, and in believing, have life in His name. And we come to John chapter 3 in this uh, section of the Gospel of John, where in John chapter 2, after Jesus had displayed that He was the the Savior uh, of mankind um, by changing water to wine, proving that He was the Messiah, Um, going into his father's house in the temple, showing that he was the son of God and had authority uh, to do what he did there and to even predict what would be done in the future, that he would be crucified and raised up on the third day. uh, John the apostle at the end of John chapter 2 includes this phrase where it says that in 23, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and he needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. And then John the Apostle goes on to give us really three pictures of uh, men, if you will, like he just described, who may have believed because of some of the signs that they had seen or wondered because of the signs that they saw, but in their heart of hearts had not fully trusted in Christ. And so Jesus had not entrusted Himself to them fully yet. So we saw Nicodemus, uh, a religious leader. This morning we're going to be looking at a group of Jewish disciples, Uh, and then next week we're going to be looking at a Samaritan woman. And so you can see the, the wide range of kinds of people that John had in mind who may have had a surface level awareness or a belief in Jesus because of His signs, but had not fully repented of their sins, trusted in Christ alone to save them, and, and begun to follow Him. Religious leader all the way to a sinful Samaritan woman, and right in the middle is a group of Jewish disciples. And it's these Jewish disciples who really uh, are trying to, what I'm going to use as an illustration, eclipse Jesus. Um, You know what an eclipse is. Uh, Maybe some of you a few years back, I was remembering this week and even talking with my family this morning on the way here, uh, talking about the last eclipse that we were able to see uh, here in Texas. And Maybe you had some fancy equipment to be able to view this eclipse with uh, special goggles and glasses and this, that, or the other. Well, I had none of that. 
Uh, but I had heard that you could take a piece of paper and poke a hole in it and look at the sun through the hole and you'd be fine. And uh, I thought, well, yeah, let's go for it. You know, what's, what's the worst that could happen? Uh, and, you know, sure enough, I mean, it seemed to kind of work out. It blocked out most of the sun's rays from my retina. And uh, I was able to, we were able to uh, stare at this sun and kind of see the, I think, partial solar eclipse uh, on that day. But, but you know that what happens during a solar eclipse is that the, the moon comes between the earth and the sun and, and, you know, at the right moment, at the right place can totally eclipse the sun. Now, when that happens, it does go pretty dark for a while, but when an eclipse happens, it doesn't mean that the sun stops shining. It doesn't mean that the, the sun, you know, stops glowing, stops burning for a moment. No, it just says that something has eclipsed it. Something has stood between it and others that were looking to it. Uh, blocks it for a time, puts a, a shadow on it for a time. And in one sense, John the Baptist's disciples don't have the right perspective on Jesus. And in, in one sense, they're attempting to eclipse Jesus, the light of the world, to, to raise themselves and John the Baptist even up above Jesus Christ or to stand in between people and Jesus Christ. They're eclipsing Him, if you will. And so with that illustration in the back of our mind, and as we see that played out in this narrative and in this discourse that, that we have before us, this would be the sentence that I, I feel would summarize what, what the truth that we're going to get out of this passage this morning. It's this, that the supremacy of our Savior is eclipsed by our prideful jealousy, but exalted in our joyful humility. The supremacy of our Savior, Jesus Christ, is eclipsed by John the Baptist's disciples and even our prideful jealousy. Yet, it is exalted in John the Baptist and our joyful humility, if we will allow it. If we will allow ourselves to serve the Lord in humility having Christ in the right place and having ourselves in the right place. It will seek to exalt Jesus and to lift high Jesus and to give a clearer view of Jesus. But if we allow sin and temptation in our lives to, to overcome us and we allow prideful jealousy to, to rise up, it will end up in the end eclipsing Jesus. But, but make sure we understand it may eclipse him for a time, but eclipses don't last that long. Uh, eclipses don't stop the light from actually shining. And it won't be for but a time that the light of Christ will shine brightly. So let's look together at John chapter 3 and 22 through the end of the chapter. We see the setting beginning in, in verse 22 that after this, that is after Jesus had been in Jerusalem, uh, where he overturned the tables in the temple and he met with uh, Nicodemus at night. 
He and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, out of the city, into the more rural parts uh, of the countryside in Judea, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim because water was plentiful there and people were coming and being baptized. In verse 24, John gives us just a, a brief period of clarity uh, for his readers, saying, for John had not yet been put in prison. That's important for them uh, uh, because uh, it's foreshadowing for those who are reading this gospel for the first time and those who don't know what ha- uh, is going to happen in the, ahead in the story. Uh, it's foreshadowing that John will, this, this important individual in the gospel of John, is going to be put in prison eventually. Uh, but for those who may have heard the, the story of the gospel, may have even read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, whom early on has John put in prison, uh, the Apostle John is letting them know he's yet to be put in prison yet. He's still doing his work as Jesus is doing his work. And so you have Jesus um, outside of Jerusalem, um, probably near to Jericho by the Jordan River with his disciples there baptizing. And then you've got John the Baptist uh, higher up river on the Jordan, um, coming, having moved a little bit from where we saw him previously across the Jordan, uh, but is in this place named Anon uh, of Salim, uh, which means springs. So you can understand why the Apostle John says there's much water there. It's probably a great place uh, to, to have baptisms there. But this is the setting. Jesus and his disciples down south, John the Baptist and his disciples up north, both on the Jordan River, and all of the sudden, it says a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And when we read what John the Baptist's disciples come to John the Baptist to question, Uh, The fact that many are going to be baptized by Jesus down south rather than coming to John the Baptist up north, uh, we can assume what this this conversation uh, is that they're having uh, up north, a a conversation uh, about who has more followers and how many conversations on social media have we seen of arguing between followers and trying to gain more and more out of this prideful jealousy that, that they're uh, experiencing uh, at this moment. And so they have this discussion, uh, and Jesus is receiving more than, than John the Baptist is. Though if, if we read this passage in context, it's actually not Jesus who is doing the baptizing. For John chapter 4, verse 2 uh, tells us that uh, John 4, 1 and 2 tell us that Jesus was actually not baptizing any of them, uh, but his disciples were doing the baptism. I, I think that's probably so that people, um, you know, didn't on their resume say when they listed out their baptism, be able to say, oh, well, I was baptized by Jesus. Who are you baptized by? You know, how easy would it have been for Jesus's act of baptism to 
increase someone uh, else's temptation to pride. Uh, but no, Jesus and his disciples were there. His disciples were baptizing on his behalf under his authority uh, in that place. John and his disciples uh, were baptizing under John's authority in that place. And all of a sudden, this discussion arises. And this Jew, who had probably been traveling from the south to the north, had probably gone through where Jesus was baptizing. Um, outside of Jericho on the Jordan River, seen the crowds, seen the people coming, seen what was happening there, then began to travel north. And when he got to John the Baptist area and where John's disciples were baptizing, this is just, you know, it's kind of second class, kind of not less impressive. And, and maybe, maybe this Jew, for sure, the disciples of John had experienced what John the Baptist's ministry was before. I mean, before Jesus was baptized by John, John was having droves of people come out to him. I mean, John the Baptist had what Jesus was now having, and now they're having this question. This Jew has traveled up and said, hey, why has Jesus got more people than John? I thought John was the baptizer. You know, I thought John was the one that was, uh, you know, famous for this. And so, John the Baptist's disciples, in this moment of temptation, in this moment where they could have responded like we'll see John the Baptist respond rightfully, humbly, they allowed their jealousy, their pride to creep up. I mean, we could, if we just try to put ourselves in the situation, remember when Jesus walked along the shore when John the Baptist was baptizing, John the Baptist looked at Jesus and said, Behold the Lamb of God. And two of his own disciples left to go follow Jesus. And so some of John the Baptist's disciples left to follow Jesus. Some are still with John. Now this guy's saying, well, Jesus is getting a lot more followers. You can imagine the jealousy that's rising up in these disciples of, who stayed with John the Baptist. You're like, we've been with you from the beginning, but now Jesus is getting more followers. Jesus is getting more attention. People are coming to Jesus rather than coming to you, and they question him. This is what they say in verse 26, and they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are coming to him. Notice that they didn't even say the name of the person to whom they were talking about. Look at it again. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, John, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. They're like, what, what is happening? Do you remember, John, that you were the one that baptized Jesus? Do you remember that you were the one that everyone was coming to? But now they're all going to Him. And in this moment, John's disciples' prideful jealousy is on display. It's on display for all to read. And I'm just thankful that the Bible wasn't recorded in my time period of life because how many of these kinds of situations have I allowed my own prideful jealousy to be on display? 
How many times have I, even as a young church planter, seen other pastors and churches find success, worldly maybe success, or some sort of religious definition of success that I didn't have or our church may have not had, and I'd be like, well, yeah, I could do that too if I did this, that, or the other, but I'm not doing this, that, or the other. And I allowed my pride or my jealousy to to creep up rather than trusting in the Lord and exalting Christ on that day. Not only did I not exalt Christ, I just made myself look ridiculous in the moment. And isn't that what happens in moments where we allowed our pride to creep up and exude out of us? It just, in the end, makes us look so childish, so childish. And, and we've found ways, adults, to, to make our pride look better and to cover it up and to make it look a little bit more sophisticated. But at the heart of it is pride. At the heart of it, it's us wanting to be like what Adam and Eve wanted to be, God. We want to be in the limelight. We want to be the one that's exalted. We want to be the one that people are looking at. We want to be the one that people think great of. We want to be the one that is popular. We want to be the one rather than exalting the one that is to be lifted up, Jesus Christ Himself. Paul gets at this a a little bit later, and he who, um, you know, for most of his life was on a trajectory to become high up in the religious life of Judaism, but with one look at the light of Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus, he could not get himself lower to the floor, fell off his horse onto the ground, bowing himself to the Lord, and, and would spend the rest of his life not boasting in himself, but boasting in Christ in Christ alone, not, not caring whether people followed him or followed another. As he writes in 1 Corinthians 1, 12 through 17, Paul says, what I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. And he asks, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God, Paul says, that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. (laughs) Similar to what Jesus uh, was practicing here probably. I did not baptize, uh, or in verse 17 he goes on and says, For Christ did not send me to baptize but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. See, we've all fallen short of the glory of God. We've all fallen into this same temptation that these disciples had in this moment where prideful jealousy just rises up and and overcomes us. And, And it's only when we look to Christ and begin to see Him high and exalted in His right place of honor and right place of glory and see ourselves sinful as we are, humbled before Jesus, that we'll be able to attack pride with the Word of God, by the Spirit of God, 
with the help of the people of God uh, together with one another so that we don't fall into this, uh, this temptation or rather than fall, <laughs> rise up in, into this sinful temptation to allow prideful jealousy to be on display. But we, we continue on and we see John's response to them. And in John's response, we don't see prideful jealousy. Uh, John could have had uh, many opportunities in this, in this kind of a moment to lift himself up, but he doesn't. Rather than prideful jealousy, John displays joyful humility. Look in verse 27, he says, John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. That's true of everything in this life. John the Baptist understood um, what all of us come to understand, that God is the giver of every good and perfect gift. James, the brother of Jesus, had to come to understand this himself. And so we understand uh, what, what John is saying here, but John is going a step further and saying, even the ministry that I have of being the forerunner of Jesus Christ, even the ministry that I have to baptize people in repentance and faith is a gift given to me by Jesus Christ, by God the Father. It's from heaven above. And Christian, we need to remember that ourselves. Whether you're a missionary here, um, you know, going back soon to be around the world proclaiming the Gospels, we need to remember that any ministry that you have is from above, from the Lord. Any good that comes from you is from the Lord. Or a future church planter in our own city, that any ministry that you might have, any opportunity that you have to proclaim the Gospel in our city, any fruit that comes from your preaching, any salvations that come from your investment, in that YMCA or that church is going to be a gift from the Lord, and we have to remember that. Or Christian here at this church, any good that comes out of your ministry, serving in our kids' classes, serving at an event here at our YMCA, um, serving the Lord behind the scenes as some are doing even right now as we're meeting, uh, both here and away from here this morning, is from the Lord. A John says a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. In verse 28, he reflects back from what we studied in chapter 1. And he says, You yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. John is saying this, this, this has always been the case. I've been saying this. I'm a broken record on this. Y'all remember what a record is? They're like, I'm, a, I'm continuing to repeat myself over and over and over. Just go back and read John 1. He said, I'm unworthy to untie his sandals. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John's ministry was one that was lifting high Jesus even when droves of people were coming to him. He gave his own disciples to go and follow Jesus, and yet his disciples, here in this moment of prideful jealousy, had not yet realized the 
supremacy of Jesus uh, and the humility of everyone else, including John the Baptist, in his ministry. And so John is just telling them at this point what he's already told them. And he gives them an illustration to help them understand this in verse 29 and 30. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him, listen, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. You know, in a, this illustration, um, I think it has both biblical roots and also just cultural roots. Um, the, the cultural roots we still understand. Um, the, the wedding ceremony in first century uh, Judaism in this aspect was not, not far from our wedding uh, culture in 2023, even here in America. That the people of importance at a wedding are a bride and a groom. Right? And when I'm performing a wedding ceremony, I go so far as to say to the um, best man and the groomsmen and the, bridesmaid, uh, the bridesmaids uh, on this side, wherever the bride is, that's where you're to be facing and looking. So when she's back at the doors and the doors open, you're facing there. And if she makes it all the way to the center, you're to be turning to be facing her. I mean, it's all about her and him on that day. But just, just imagine a groomsman, a best man, a, a, as John describes, a friend of the groom standing right next to the groom and in that moment trying to get everyone to look at him. You know, just trying to just like make, make himself look good, winking at the bridesmaids on the other side. I mean, we're laughing about that, but if you were in that moment, you would be upset, right? If you were one of the family members or if you were just a guest, you'd be like, oh my goodness, what is he doing? Uh, you would just be appalled by that. And, and that, the best groomsman is forgotten after the, the wedding. The best groomsman has made that the best day for the groom and for the bride on that day. They have served behind the scenes. They have gotten things ready. They've taken care of things so that the bride and groom can focus on what was important that day. And, and so, uh, and, and the, groom, the, the friend of the groom, John mentions, has great joy in that. Look at the repetition there where in the middle of 29 it says, the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. When it's time for the wedding, he's rejoicing greatly that it's come to fruition. And so Paul translates that to himself saying, I'm not the groom. The Lord is the groom. And I'm not, of course, the bride. For the people of God are the bride. And that's where the biblical roots of this illustration go back to. There are the cultural roots of this illustration, but there's also biblical roots for when we look back to the Old Testament. 
Um, consistently, God is described as the groom or the husband of the bride Israel and God's people. In fact, uh, an entire prophetic book of Hosea is given to this imagery being displayed uh, there. We can read about it in other uh, prophetic books of Isaiah as well. That's consistent through the Old Testament. It, it, we see images like that used by John the Baptist. Jesus himself uses a wedding uh, illustration like this, but even as you continue on into the New Testament, it will be that imagery of a wedding, a groom and a bride that is used to describe the relationship between Christ and the church. Even when you get to the book of Revelation, in the very end, there is a marriage supper, a wedding supper of the Lamb, uh, the groom with the bride, the church, the, the true Israel and all the true believers in the New Testament church gathered together. And while John the Baptist, in one sense, is using this illustration to say he's a friend of the groom to exalt Jesus, what's going to be his joy in the end is that he's not just a friend of the groom watching this marriage supper of the Lamb happening, he's going to be with all those who have believed the bride, getting to be wedded perfectly to Christ in the new heavens and the new earth. And so we take John's illustration here of, of this wedding and his summary there in verse 30, he must increase, but I must decrease. And we just see John's joyful humility on display. John uh, finds that in recognizing Christ and His supremacy and recognizing His own sinful um, yet faithful obedience in humility is where He finds the greatest joy. It's, it's only when He has things in the right perspective is when He finds the greatest joy. When Christ is exalted and He is humbled. You see, but we spend so much of our life trying to exalt ourselves, trying to find a joy and a happiness that just doesn't last. And, and we just attempt one thing. And we may have a moment, a temporary pleasure of sin, uh, or of happiness, but it's fleeting, as the Bible describes. And so we have to try another one. And we try to continue to exalt ourselves, to continue to have that happiness, that joyfulness, and yet it's just not lasting, and it's not fulfilling. And yet John describes here that it's only when he flips things right back over where they should be, and Christ is exalted, and He is laid low, that His joy is made complete. And Christian, I wonder if th that might be encouraging and yet challenging to you, that so often we've tried to find joy in the things of this earth or find joy in uh, temporary things where really we've allowed our prideful jealousy to uh, eclipse Jesus, 
And we may have had moments of happiness, but they've been fleeting and temporary. And we need to stop eclipsing Jesus and start exalting Jesus and find that when we start doing that with every bit of our being and every fiber uh, of our being, every breath that we breathe, then only then will our joy be complete, which may also mean that no earthly situation changes. John didn't say this, and then all of a sudden, like all of these followers start coming back to him. No, remember what he said at the previous, what the Apostle John said was about to happen to him? He hasn't yet been thrown in prison. And yet, John's temporary circumstances are not, not going to get better. They're actually going to get worse. And yet, he's rejoicing greatly, and his joy is made complete because Christ is in the right place of honor, and he has humbled himself before Christ. He's sought to not eclipse Jesus, but to exalt Jesus. And we need to hear that, Christian. We need to hear that to get things in the right perspective, but also not knowing what is going to happen an hour ago. Not know what's going to happen this afternoon when we leave this parking lot. Not know what's going to happen later this week, later this month, later this year. And yet, despite our earthly temporary circumstances, if, our, if we've exalted Jesus and humbled ourselves before Him, there is still joy to be had. Joy to the full. Complete joy, as John the Baptist describes. Only when He increases and we decrease. And John the Baptist in verse 30 even says that in a matter of like, it has to happen. It must happen. Even if John tried to do things different and had this new, amazing baptism program, you know, and a marketing venture that was going to bring more people north up the river than south down the river, he knows that those plans would be thwarted because the will of God was for Christ to increase and for him to decrease. He said, it must happen. And Christian, the same is true in your life. It must happen. It will happen. In the end, Christ will be exalted and every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Don't spend your days here on this earth trying to get others to bow their knee to you and to lift up your name. But spend your life bowing your knee and exalting His name and finding the joy, a bit, a bit of the joy that we're all going to have on that day when we kneel before Christ uh, forever in eternity. John's a, a great example uh, of us, of, of what it looks like to, to follow Jesus, and it, but it's only because He has the, the right framework, the right understanding of Jesus and His supremacy, which is what we're going to look at in, in closing in verse 31. In verse 31, I, I sense that John the Apostle is now um, concluding this uh, part of Scripture where like in John chapter 3, verse 16 through 21, I, I, it was my understanding that 
John the Apostle was writing this summary of truth in response to the story of Nicodemus. I think here too that John the Apostle, John the Baptist has stopped speaking in verse 30. And then in verse 31, John the Apostle is writing himself and summarizing these things. And it's here where he highlights Christ's heavenly supremacy. Heavenly for, as he writes in verse 31, he who comes from above is above all. Remember that. He who is of this earth belongs to the earth, and he speaks in an earthly way. But he concludes in that verse, he says, he who comes from heaven is above all. It's a sandwich here. A, a, a reminder of the, from the Apostle Paul reminding us of Christ's heavenly supremacy from where He has come from. He's above all because He is from above. He's the Son of God from heaven. And you'll see this theme throughout the entire Gospel of John as we're reading it together in our Bible reading plan. The Apostle John showing that Jesus is above all. He's above all earthly names, all earthly rulers. Uh, he is the Son of God from heaven. And therefore, that puts Him with a superiority, a supremacy um, over all things here on this earth. As compared to John, the Baptist that John the Apostle describes is of the earth belongs to the earth, and he speaks in an earthly way. That's not only true of John the Baptist, but it's true of us as well. We're of this earth. We speak uh, as if we're from this earth as compared to Jesus alone who is from above and is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, that being those things of heaven and being with His Father in heaven. He speaks of what He has seen and what He has heard, and yet no one receives His testimony. Now, that's not 100% true. That's a little bit of hyperbole, just like the disciples of John the Baptist. When they came to John the Baptist, they said, all are going to Jesus. Well, that wasn't actually 100% true. It was hyperbole. Um, saying that more people are going to Jesus than are coming here. And the Apostle John, when he's writing these words, he's saying that no one has received his testimony. But that's not 100% true, but it's describing the majority of, of people. And yet, throughout the Gospel of John up to this point, including in, in chapter 1, we get this great statement uh, that to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He shall give them the right to become children of God. And so there are going to be some along the way who do receive Him as the Apostle will describe in the following verse, in verse 33. Whoever receives His testimony sets His seal to this, that God is true. When we believe Jesus and the words of Jesus and the testimony of Jesus that He is the Son of God, that He is the Savior of the world, that He came to die and to rise from the dead, when we receive His testimony, we're saying, in a sense, that God is true. 
and that everything that God has said has come true and has been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And that the truth that John wrote earlier in his introduction of chapter 1 would be true of them as well. That if they receive Him, that they would be given the right to become children of God. In verse 34, he summarizes and says, For he whom God has sent utters the words of God. For he gives the Spirit without measure. For he, Jesus, that is in verse 34, whom God has sent, he utters the words of God. In fact, the Apostle John opened up his gospel saying he was titled the Word of God. He has the words of God. He's spoke the words of God. He is the Word of God because, it says, for He, God, gives the Spirit without measure. Up to that point, the Spirit of God had been given to uh, the people of God and individuals, leaders of, of God, for a moment and a certain amount of the Spirit, if you will, to lead God's people in, in a specific way or a specific season, a specific time. But, but on Christ, it was different. For God the Father had given the Spirit upon Him without measure, the fullness of the Spirit uh, to be on display, especially during this season of ministry on display. And that's why He's able to speak the words of God. And says, the Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. Again, summarizing what He said in verse 31, because He's above all. And so John concludes. He says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. I mean, this is exactly what Jesus said. Just look back in chapter 3, verse 15. Maybe a column over where Jesus Himself said, whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. Whoever believes in Him, that is the Son of Man who would be lifted up on a pole. Whoever believes in Him would have eternal life. The Apostle is saying the same thing that Jesus said to Nicodemus that night. Whoever believes in Him. It doesn't mean that... Or, or, this doesn't mean you have to get your life fixed up and get right uh, before you come to God and then He'll re receive you. No, it's whoever believes in Him. And believing in Him would most definitely include Jesus' own command of repentance of sin and trusting in Christ and following Him all of His days. And whoever believes in Him, whoever responds to the heavenly supremacy of Christ Jesus, the Son of God, the Savior of the world, who would die and rise from the dead, will receive eternal life. But the contrast of that is, is true as well. Look at the last part of verse 36. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Again, this is similar to the Apostle's words earlier in John chapter 3 where he speaks of Jesus in verse 17 not being sent by God into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. In verse 18, whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already 
Why? Because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. So Paul says here in verse 36, whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. For, for all of us, this was true earlier on in our life. We had yet to repent of our sins. We had yet to trust Christ. We had yet to look to Christ and allow Him to be exalted and, and His supremacy to reign in our life. Uh, and so the condemnation of our sin was remained on us. Or in this verse, the wrath of God remained on us. It was ours from our very conception. For we were born into sin. We were born with a sinful nature. It was only when we looked to Christ, only when in looking to Christ and seeing Him exalted, we repented of our sins and trusted Christ and sought to follow Him, denying ourselves all of our days, taking up our cross, seeking to follow Him. It's only then uh, were we given eternal life. It was only then did we receive adoption into God's family to become children of God. And so we have this, this question before us. We have the, this response before us. Will we, like John the Baptist's disciples, continue on the path that we were born into, not exalting Jesus, but eclipsing Jesus, aiming at least, let's say, for a brief moment of time to eclipse Jesus and to find joy and happiness and life here on this earth, realizing that the longer we do that, the less full of joy we are, the less full of life we are, the more condemnation and the closer we get to ultimate condemnation and wrath we get? Or will we spend our lives exalting Jesus as we ought? Not trying to get in between Him, but getting out of the way. Letting Him increase and letting us decrease. To find out that when we humble ourselves, repenting of our sins and trusting Christ, we receive heaven and eternal life. And that's not just a future reality to come. That's a, a future hope to come, if you will. That's a present reality that we have right here and right now. And when we finally do that, when we finally bow our knee and turn to trust Christ and spend all of our days exalting Jesus and lifting Him up, and laying ourselves low, letting Him increase and letting us decrease. The same joy that was available to John the Baptist is available to us as well. The fullness of joy. A complete joy that despite our earthly circumstances will continue because eternal life has entered our hearts. Jesus Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life, has... Um, given His very own Spirit to us. And so we sit and get to enjoy that. Christian, this is important for us to understand that the supremacy of our Savior is eclipsed by our prideful jealousy, but it is exalted 
in our joyful humility. May you stop eclipsing Jesus and begin exalting Jesus this day. First and foremost, through repentance and faith and trusting Him once and for all. Or once again, getting out of the way, exalting Jesus and spending your life uh, helping others to stop eclipsing Jesus and begin exalting Jesus so that your joy and their joy may be full, that they might believe and have life in His name. Let's pray. Father, would you help us this morning to get out of the way? Lord Jesus, may you be the one that, was li- that is still being lifted high this morning in our reports, in our prayers, in our songs, in our preaching or our teaching, in our conversations later this morning, in our actions later this afternoon. May you be exalted. May we be reminded again this morning of your greatness. May we be reminded again of our own sinfulness that was paid for on the cross and conquered in the resurrection. May we be reminded of our need for you each and every day, depending upon you for help. And Lord, may we spend our lives seeking for you to increase and for us to decrease so that your supremacy is on display for all to see. Lord, help us to do that. May the picture and consideration of being a friend of the groom be helpful to us, aiming to lift high Christ Jesus as the groom and the body of Christ as the bride, knowing that we are a part of that. May the imagery of an eclipse versus exalting help us to go out this week aiming for you to increase and for us to decrease. Help us, I pray, as we respond in worship and praise to you who alone deserves our worship and praise. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.